Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Born in Norfolk, Virginia in 1956, B.J. Liederman is an American composer and songwriter. In college in the 1970s, he wrote jingles on the side, and in 1979, he was asked to submit a demo to National Public Radio. Sitting in a friend's garage and banging on a cheap Krumar orchestrator plugged into a TAC four-track reel-to-reel tape recorder, he came up with the melody that public radio listeners have been listening to for almost 40 years as NPR's Morning Edition theme song. Themes for Weekend Edition, Marketplace, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and Car Talk soon followed. Lederman moved to New York City in the mid-80s, where he built a successful jingle career, winning multiple awards, including the Clio. Referred to as the Oscars of marketing, a Clio recognizes innovation and creative excellence in advertising, design, and communication as judged by an international panel of advertising professionals. Time Magazine describes the event as the world's most recognizable international advertising award ceremony. Partnering with creative director and art director Howard Hoffman, Liederman has worked as a copywriter for clients including Nickelodeon, Tyco Toys, and Cartoon Network at Basel Advertising and Gray Advertising in New York. Liederman lives in Asheville, North Carolina where he produced his debut album, BJ, in 2017, featuring the Randall Bramblett Band and Bella Fleck. This wide-ranging interview takes place in two locations. We start on a hike in the woods surrounding Asheville, North Carolina, where we talk about meditation and his battle with Lyme disease, which has affected his memory, making it difficult to learn and play new music. We finish the interview at a grand piano, where BJ plays some of his most memorable musical compositions, reflects on his musical career, and shares advice for folks who want to make a career in the arts. So please enjoy this talk with BJ Liederman. This, this is the beautiful, uh, I don't know what to call this. The high school kids, when they practice their running, their track, they go through here. This uh, cross-country running. Yeah, let's just, just wait a minute. No, that's a little murky with the... We'll go this way. The, um, the guy who owns all this, and when I say owns all this, he owns, as far as the eye could see, this side of the road and the other. And he parceled out some land for his kids up there with some houses. But this he likes to keep. When he comes out here with his tractor and he... Uh, beautifies it and makes it all nice and smooth for the, and he lets people come and bring their dogs and it's great dogs run like hell this is and nice we don't have to worry about them running off this is great r-u-n-n-o-f-t so <laughs> what is that from uh forrest gump or it's, what is it it's from uh brother where art thou oh brother where art thou yeah i knew that there was a reference there somewhere so we're here for our listeners um we're in Asheville, North Carolina, with B.J. Lederman, and uh, we're walking through some lush, green um, pasture of some kind. There's trees all over. There's hills surrounding us that are packed with beautiful green. 
What kind of trees are those, BJ? You know? Those are trius foliages. <laughs> okay. Those are those trees are called shade. Shade trees. trees. Okay. <laughs> I like it. Anyway, we're walking with BJ. And uh, this is a different approach to podcasting that I have never tried, which is interviewing out in nature and dealing with the sound of the wind and the various challenges, audio challenges we're going to face. But I think the payoff will be that we're actually uh, doing something pretty unique out here and getting something we wouldn't uh, normally get in a studio. Yeah, we're seeing uh, some wildflowers. I'm so glad he's let the wildflowers pop back up. They're yeah. They're beautiful. And purple and white, yellow wildflowers and uh, butterflies. It's supposed to be about 85 degrees today. It feels 95 on my balding head. <laughs> so we're almost into the shade where there will be no wind and everything will be hunky-dory. How you doing? Good. Hope you're paying her well. <laughs> She's an intern. Stop. It's volunteer at this Stop. point. Stop. Do you meditate? Um, I have a meditation app, and uh, that's about as far as I've gone. I've tried. Did the very process of installing that app did, could you feel something click get to place yeah well i've actually tried meditating with the app and it is extremely difficult for me to even try a minute to two minutes mm -hmm. which probably is a sign that i need to meditate more and i think there's an easier way to approach it and and I'm saying that because I found it. And if I found it, anybody can find it. Yeah. And so I find it's... See up there, tippy top, on the other side of that mountain is uh, Billy Graham's home. And, and it's called the Coves, where he, his uh, well, university of sorts is. And supposedly up there at the top, there's a platform where he used to come and you can see Asheville, the downtown Asheville from there. Wow. He used to come and practice his uh, sermons. That's how it goes. That's how the story goes. <sighs> okay, folks, get ready for some lush life, coolness and beauty and solitude. Oh, yeah, this is gorgeous. So we're walking into a shaded area on a trail and the, the sun is peeking through the trees here and there but it, the temperature is probably oh a good 10 degrees cooler in this shaded area so you walk very slowly very deliberately Being aware when you pull your foot off of the earth, when you set that foot down again. No special type of breathing. 
just your normal breath in and out as is comfortable for you. And every now and then you find a shady place to stop and just stare off in the distance, breathing through your nose. You're not thinking about a thing. You're not really worried about anything. Because you know if you let go for these few minutes, it's not going to be a deal breaker of any kind. There may be a distracting sound now and then, but you acknowledge it. Hey there, hot rod. And then you can let it go. And the sounds of the forest come back. That's how I do it anyway. Nice. Yeah, that's, that is a, uh, something that I, I don't think many people take the time to do, which is just to be still. And a lot of people have access to a place where they can be, where there is sufficient quiet, where they can be quiet and still. And people even in cities have access to little nooks and crannies of gardens or forests, you know, growth. Yeah. That uh, <laughs> sort of automatically sets the scene for, for a real you know, for solitude and a real meditative experience. Unless, of course, you meet Mr. Bear up here, which I did yesterday. There's bear up at, here? At the, at the house. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> you live on one of these mountainsides, and, you know, they were here first, so... Uh-huh. Um, they mostly come out when people are uh, skitzy with their garbage, and the bears come early in the morning, dr drag your garbage into the woods. But Maisie chased this bear the hell off the property yesterday. Wow. And I followed. <laughs> I made sure that bear wasn't going to come back. <laughs> so right now, excuse me, do what I usually do when I enter the woods. I'll say, walking here. Yeah, walking there. Yeah. Walking here. Gone now, gone! And that basically gives them an idea of where the trouble is. Yeah. And where not to be. Yeah. I'm not taking you on a long thing. Do not worry. I'm just going to find the coolest part in here. And we will just maybe sit down. Can never get too far away from an internal combustion engine, though. Yeah, it's difficult to... We're near the airport. Yeah. The, 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 uh, we're near the approach for the airport. So is that bear spray in your pocket? Yes, it is. <laughs> okay. You didn't tell me you were carrying. You don't need a permit for it. Yeah. Is that bear scat? Mm-mm. Nope. Maybe deer. So you know I have Lyme disease. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, we start there. Okay. When you're talking, if you want to drift into my 
neurocognitive situation. Oh, really? Why I'm not playing music. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I was uh, in Shelter Island and also Lyme, Connecticut, uh, before I went, boarded a plane at Kennedy Airport um, to go to Israel. And this was in the 80s or 90s. And um, I did not know I had been bit because most people do not see this deer ticket smaller than the period, you know, pencil makes a period at the end of a sentence. And uh, two days into Israel, <laughs> about 500 of us, and we were eating dinner at a Bedouin camp, and I fell out. I just fell down, and it was like the worst flu I'd ever had all of a sudden. And the last thing, you know, they would think of in Israel is Lyme disease. They don't know anything about anything about that, I don't think. And I had eaten the same thing everybody else had eaten. No one else was getting sick, so we ruled that out. When was this? In the 90s. Okay. And I got better. It put me in hotels while everybody else continued to have fun. And I came home, kissed the ground, and not much went on for a few years. And then I started noticing that it was harder and harder for me to figure out things like how to put my recording studio together or how to patch the MIDI cables or keep up with the latest change in the software, which was happening at a more rapid clip all the time. And, um, and one day, lo and behold, thanks to the internet, I was surfing around, I saw a picture of a guy with a bullseye rash on the side of his body, and I said, you know, I had that. I looked in the mirror. It's, if you don't see it, you may not get it because it's not raised, it doesn't itch. It's just like a wine stain type of rash. So I got treated, intravenous IV, and, but it was too many years after the, the bite. Yeah. So this critter took its toll. And so you've been, you've been suffering from symptoms ever since? Yes. That's where it started. Let's go to Bonnie's. It's a bit too hot right now. It's getting Different warm. part of the day for It's this. getting warm, yeah. But we can continue. Um, yeah, that was the start. And... So what we're up to now is moderate cognitive impairment. Moderate cognitive impairment. And it's, for me, the stuff's all located in, in the frontal lobe, working memory, executive function. Guess what? That's how we communicate, talking to each other. And the tests show that I am really uh, sucky on my auditory learning. Mm. So... Things go in, and my brain does not know where to store the info, so it basically purges. So you've had neuro, uh, neuropsychological testing then? Yes, I have. Huh. And truth be told, the fact that I'm still, you know, on the outside <laughs> is a testament to the strength and the the health of my mental health. Yeah. 
he said with a snicker and a smile. So it's uh, a couple years ago, I said, you know what? Oh, I put an album out, there you go. BJ. Yes. Okay. Full of kippy pop songs and a few serious songs. And shortly after that, I realized, you know, it is so hard to learn new songs. And it's hard to, sometimes I find myself in the middle of a song, I don't know where I am, even if there's a lyric sheet in front of me. So I pulled myself out of the biz two years ago. And basically have been concentrating on healing my my body and my heart and my soul. And lately, though, I've been on my own trying to figure out a new way to learn songs. And the trick is learn them in very small increments, short bits. Yeah. And stringing the bits together kind of comes naturally. You know, when you had an album, one song would end, you sort of could hear in your mind's eye what the next song, the beginning of the next song. Mm-hmm. That happens the same thing this way. Yeah. So you're breaking it, you're just breaking it Break into it smaller down. parts. It kind of puts, yeah. It, yeah, shuffles itself back together rather easily once I start playing it. The other part, which horrified me, is that my processor, my brain, was not telling me if I'm singing on pitch correctly. Uh. I couldn't quite tell anymore. Uh, so there are a couple workarounds for that too. You know, in-ear monitors, and God help me if I have to buy one of these, but I will if I need to. Uh, automatic real-time pitch corrector, because I don't want to scare the kids. You know? <laughs> scare the kids. So there may be some future, you know, uh, live performances in the offing for old BJ here. Yeah. Well, your your voice sounded great on the album. Thank you. Uh, produce, producer was Eric Serafin, known as Mixer Man. Um, fabulous producer. Worked me to death, got the best possible performances out of me. And the band, backup band, was great too. They were the, the Randall Bramlett band out of Watkinsville area, Georgia. And um, it was a joy, but hard work and scary for me. I mean, this is my first album, my only album. Mm-hmm. What am I going to do? I have a certain public radio image to keep up. Uh-huh. <laughs> so the album was put out in, in 2017. Did you record it all in 2017? I think we recorded it in 2016. Okay. I don't know. Here's the thing. You must go to other people for dates and times. Okay. I do not have that shuffled in the deck well. So how did it how did it come together? I mean, you, you played with um, Bella Fleck, right? Actually, Bella was interesting. My good friend, and she was assisting me at the time, Barbie Angel. Yes, Barbie Angel. Uh, she told me to come to the Leaf Festival, the Lake Eden Art Festival, which is a twice-yearly wonderful huge gathering in the Black Mountain area. And uh, she said, come backstage after Bella's set. I want to introduce you. <laughs> so she did, and he sort of knew who I was. So I asked him there. I said, I have these pre-made, very short snippets of uh, instrumentals that I would love for you to consider 
playing on, and he chose three. And he invited me to his Nashville studio, let me produce him, and those are three of my favorite cuts on the whole album. Oh, they're great. They're great. It's kind of joyous. Yeah, I mean, Bell is, is just such a great presence on, on an album like that because you know it's him. I mean, it's just singular, unique. When you have a style like that, it's hard to hide. Yeah. And, uh, but, it, you know, he really plays the banjo like no one else and, and actually turns it into almost like an electric guitar in some ways. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's awesome. So I was um, fortunate to be able to do things like that. Fortunate to have Randall Bramlett and his band, you know, just such a solid rhythm section deal going on there. Yeah. And um, so I was happy with it. You know, it's done. And we can talk more about that. Yeah. Where we went from there. Hi there. Good to be indoors. BJ Lederman, thank you for, for uh, being on the podcast. You're welcome. Thank you. And uh, thank you for the hike earlier <laughs> that I'm still cooling off from. Yeah, I think we lost part of our, you know, our chi. Yeah. <laughs> over there <laughs> in, in the woods. But we're, we're listening to you. You're sitting at a grand piano or a baby grand. It's actually a hybrid. Look, oh, it's a hybrid? No strings. Oh, okay. It's got the digital. Yeah, it's a Yamaha keyboard, a real um, Yamaha grand piano keyboard with hammers under there and they're hitting triggers. Right. And this is a multi-sample, I don't know how to explain it to you, but there are 16 channels of discrete sound in here. So when I play this note up here, the microphone that recorded that high G in the studio was also, there were four other mics and, excuse me, three other mics in three other places pointed at the piano. Yeah. Those mics are getting the sound from that G2 and playing it back through the specific speakers that they recorded on. Oh. You know, the same spot. So they're getting harmonics and delay. And so it's the closest thing to tricking the mind into thinking you're listening to a real piano. Yeah. That I've heard. It's, it sounds wonderful. Um, we've heard you play a couple of songs just kind of riffing. Um, but, you know, I, I was wondering if you could uh, give us, um, now that we're officially fully mic'd, Maybe a, a sampling. You don't have to go through all of the songs individually, but just a sampling of your theme music for NPR that probably most of our listeners have emblazoned into their musical psyches from over the last 40 years. I will make a good faith attempt okay. to do that. Let me see. No, I guess I can't. <laughs> Take two. Do this with the glasses. That's better. Three, four.
and it came off the rails there because that right there is an example of what's happening to my memory. Huh. I couldn't figure out what was next, so I had to jump off. Isn't that horrible? Ah, uh, yeah. It's I'm just, sorry, BJ. That's... Now I can pick up, <laughs> but I won't. Well, we'll just end the career there. How's that? Yeah, no, that's, I, I think you, that's a great sampling of some of the music that has just become, you know, iconic in news radio. And, um, you know, all of the, all the fans of NPR who are listening to that, it's just going to bring, bring back a flood of memories over the, over the decades of listening to car talk and morning edition and weekend edition, yeah. um, marketplace. Um, so can, can you tell us the, the origin story of the NPR theme music and how, how you got into that, um, sphere? Of course I can. Thinking about making something up instead. It was right place, right time. Yeah. It was, um, 1977. NPR was cooking up a new morning news show. They were kind of in trouble with a pilot that they sent out to the affiliates, the member stations. I think the member stations didn't like it so much, and so they had to you know, restructure everything very quickly, and they brought people from inside NPR over to be producer. And um, I had given my cassette tape of jingles my jingle demo cassette to my good friend, well, friends, Skip and Jerry Peasy. Uh, Skip worked in the engineering department at NPR. Jerry uh, was a PA and did other things, other stories with them. And uh, as Skip tells me, one day he went to his mailbox down there and there was a little piece of paper from the desk of Jim Russell, who was the new producer of Morning Edition, said, Skip had given my jingle demo to Jim because they needed to retool this show. They had a deadline, they had an air date. And uh, the piece of paper said, get me BJ Lederman, underlined exclamation point. So I had a meeting with Jim. Um, they told me what they wanted to do. They told me what um, the morning was going to be like. And yes, we do have dogs. If, if you, the panting in the background. It's not me. It's not BJ. It's the dogs. Two, two uh, North Carolina dogs who just came in from, from outside in the heat. And so, um, so I went away during spring break and did this little four-track demo on a cheesy keyboard called the Krumar Orchestrator. French horn, bass, uh, string sound. You know, this is before real synthesizers, so this thing sounded like hell. And... Um, and he loved it. And a little while, I don't know how many months, whatever, before the show was set to go on the air, he left to start his own uh, consulting. Actually, he started up Marketplace. He produced Marketplace at first, and he um, handed the tape over to the, the new producer, Jay Kernis. And with the instructions that when you go into your first you know, production meeting or creative meeting and they say, well, what are we going to do about a theme? You raise your hand and give them this. So you got to think about that moment for a second. If Jim Russell didn't believe in, in that demo, you know, it's, it's the, it had the, 
that melody was right there with it um, and did not hand it off to Jay. Or if Jay, you know, introduced it to the board or whatever and they didn't like, a number of lucky happenstances happened, you know, one after another. And uh, they gave, they green-lighted the project to go into the studio and do a number of, you know, different versions and timings and call them, Jay Kernis calls them buttons and bleebles. A bleeble's the thing that, goes round and round and round. It just keeps going forever so the engineer can fade it out. Nice. And that was the beginning. And shortly after that, I believe it was Weekend Edition. Marketplace happened shortly after that. Um, Stump the Chumps theme, which I ruined, but it was a... It's a little cartoony thing. Oh, I that love was that for, show. Uh, for car talk. It's where Clicking Clack called somebody that they'd previously given advice to to see how it went. Yeah. Um, Great show. And a lot of others, uh, along with, and sh who shall never heretofore remain nameless, Jim Pugh, P-U-G-H. He is a trombonist. He is an arranger, and NPR put us together for the second arrangement package every few years they would bring us back into the studio to to freshen up the thing make it you know sound more modern or whatever and uh and and fill it in with different uh different cuts different packages different timings and jim Pugh and i started working together and this man um let me just cut to the chase you wouldn't be sitting here interviewing me i don't think if not for jim because what he does to my you know i present him with a simple computer recorded demo of a lot of different cuts. And he, he writes, arranging his writing. And he turned my simple, you know, I had a good strong melody and all that, but he found the layers in there. He's, the, he's playing for, been playing for Steely Dan for the past decade or so. Um, he's been with a Woody Herman band. He's been, I mean, just look up his bio, it's tremendous. Huh? And so, it's another stroke of luck that I got put together with Jim Pugh because my sound would, would still be, you know, a very innocent, straightforward pop rock type of deal. And, and Jim just, the music evolved like from, you know, sh shades of gray to full color swirls under Jim. Would you refer, I mean, how would you um, refer to him in terms of a, a title? Would it be producer? God. Okay. <laughs> he, he's producer, he's arranger, he's conductor. I mean, uh, the first time, literally, uh, I was so green. It was in New York City in the famous RCA Edison recording studio. And I was in the control room eating sushi with, <laughs> with the uh, execs and stuff. And he was setting up the players. And I said, who's that over there? He said, that's uh, Richard T on piano. OJ's, OJ's, yeah. I said, who's that on the, with the horn? That's that Randy Brecker, moron. <laughs> who's this over here? It's Chuck Loeb. He plays with Steely Dan. I mean, it's just one after the other. These are people he plays with in and out day to day on jingles and uh, movie soundtracks and scores and stuff like that. So I had all that. Nice. And the Steely Dan folks talk about musicianship. I mean, the, these are not just pop musicians. They're people that understand you know, music probably more uh, intricately and intimately than, than most musicians. 
nice. We heard you're leaving. That's okay. Can't do it. So, 77, the the demo tape makes its way to the right people. In 78. 78. We're by 78 now because the show aired November 79. And uh, so, good good timing, good music, talent, a, lot of co- a combination of a lot of things. And all of a sudden, your theme music is being heard across the nation. At that time, how old were you in the late 70s? 22, 23, something like that. So I would imagine that you didn't have a very good grasp of the business aspects of... Hell no. <laughs> like any 22-year-old. This is what know. happened. They, You know, they uh, sold it to him cheap. And then Jay and Jim, but J- Jim Russell, Jay Kernis, they both said, look, we're not giving him much money. This thing could go on forever. Why not... Uh, give him a credit, on-air credit every week. It was a lot more than that, but they've, they've stopped doing credit. Anyway, you know, my name is known because it's a silly name. If it was, you know, George Bannon, no one would, but it's B.J. Lederman, and that's kind of weird, isn't it? And you hear that every day on a number of shows, you know. So, so you sell the, the music to them, to the, the station, and they it's a one-time deal they you're just like here you go you can buy it for each package okay and then they can play it as much as they want correct forever in 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 association with that show they can for promotion whatever okay and then at the time i imagine it sounded like a pretty pretty good deal but did it did your perspective on it change over the years um i consider that first go round you know, I learned from it, but I considered it a necessary go-to situation because it opened the door and didn't have any idea at that time how powerful an on-air audio credit is. As time went on from the 70s, you notice credits on TV shows and movies started flying by faster and faster, a smaller type and all this stuff. Hearing a name on the radio sticks in people's minds and that, that kind of did the trick yeah so there i would have done that for free to get you know the uh the stipulation of having an on-air credit at that time what kind of opportunities did that open up for you as an artist having your name in in the credits every week and people you sort of become a household name mainly what happened was especially when the internet uh, evolved and I started getting emails from listeners uh, telling me, and they use this pretty much this exact phrase. It's kind of corny, but I've come to love it because it, it warms me up. Uh, your music is is the uh, soundtrack of my life or of my morning or whatever they say. Yeah. And um, other opportunities. You know, the strangest thing is about B.J. Lederman, you know, most other quote-unquote, well, composers or artists of fame or of merit or whatever, they've done a whole lot of stuff. Their, their list, you know, their demo reel is deep with hundreds and hundreds of things and thousands of awards and this, that, and the other. Although I've done 
my fair share of jingle work, which is sort of, you know, the in the trenches training for all this. I think that because I have not, I don't have such an extensive body of work. It is mainly the NPR and pub other public radio shows, some that have come and gone. Um, I think it's because I have stayed centered in that area of the universe that I've taken a place of sort of a, a heavier, you know, place of, of, of more gravitas, if you will. First of all, because it's NPR. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of luck involved that I landed with NPR and not some other, you know, shit for brains organization that shall remain nameless. Yeah. Um, I'm proud. I, my background is broadcast journalism. I studied under Ed Bliss, who was the father of broadcast journalism at American University in D.C. And I, I'm all about journalism, which is why right now I'm pulling my hair out when I see, you know, a lot of stuff that I see and read and hear. Yeah. That purports to be professional journalism. Evie, do not throw up down here under my piano. <laughs> I will drop kick your kitty cat ass. Go over there. Good girl. Okay. I'm only kidding. She loves when I talk to her like that. <laughs> so how, how did you get to the point where you were writing jingles? You know, you're, you're in your twenties writing jingles and that, that's a, I mean, yeah. that is a job that I, I don't know how you make your way into that space. So tell us, you have a, you have a crazy mother who's in the arts. Um, who's got a crazy friend who wants to sing and mom finds a business, a friend of hers, had a Nautilus health spas. They had the Nautilus weight machine, you know, they had the round, it looked like a Nautilus. She said, BJ, can you write a jingle for this health spa thing and then I'll pay for you to go into a recording studio and let my friend sing on it. And that's what happened. Went into uh, Alpha Candy Apple, which is in Richmond, Virginia. It was run by partners uh, Robin Thompson of Blessed Memory, co-author of Sweet Virginia Breeze, the now official pop theme song of Virginia Beach. Um, and it was eight tracks back then and had a drum set set up, had a synthesizer, had a piano. I just went back and forth like a kid in a candy store. And then Barbara Eilberg came up and sang of Blessed Memory. And I... Good... Good. Be good to your body. Take care of your body. Mmm. <laughs> your body. And all the list will be good to you. You can die, da da. You can die, da da. Fitness is for everyone. The time is now. It'll be. Good. I mean, it's just some awful, awful, hideous jingle. And I had that on cassette, and I was able to walk that into some local ad agencies in Norfolk and Virginia Beach, and um, we went from there. So did that, it sounds like you you sort of fell into jingle writing in a way. You weren't seeking it out, it kind of sought you. know, you. I don't remember whether I was seeking it or fell into it, but that certainly opened a door. Yeah. And I kind of liked it because it's a hell of a demanding art form because you've got to squeeze, never mind all the, the, the copy, or the, the lyrics that the client wants to fit in to a 30 second or 60 second space. 
you can't shut me up about the horror show that that was. But to come up with a concept, you know, I later went on to work at ad agencies as a copywriter and concept with uh, Howard Hoffman, art director. They would pair up a copywriter and an art director. So the creative challenge of coming up with a clear, concise, meaningful, powerful, moving, and not for nothing effective concept. Most people are going, what's a concept? And they still do that now because, yeah, you can make a, a piece of music sound beautiful. You can correct pitch for singing and for instruments. You can make everything snap. And But if it's based on a concept that's weak or out of focus, it's not going to work. So I, I loved being able to just start with a you know blank sheet of paper and just be told, this is your audience, this is the store, this is the product, this is what we want to accomplish. And I could do pretty much anything I wanted from that. I, I would imagine, and as, as a musician myself, sometimes the, the, the most daunting part of writing for me is when there are no rules or constraints. It's like you don't even know where to start. But if you start with the concept of this has to be 15 seconds or 30 seconds, so you automatically have the parameter, the time parameter, and then, the, you know, you have the, the customer, the client who has a message, a very clear message that you want to get across. I'd imagine that that's a, a nice luxury to have as an artist to, um, to you know, to give you sort of the, the playbook uh, that you have to follow. I like it both ways. Because invariably I found myself, <laughs> as, as a lot of uh, creatives, excuse me, as a lot of creatives in the ad industry inevitably find themselves doing from time to time, um, we find ourselves telling the client or trying to gently insinuating to the client what they need as opposed to what they're telling us they want. Um, but this is what I've, this idea I have is a much more interesting. It's going to keep people listening to your stupid ad for 30, you know, for the whole 30 seconds. And it's, they're going to remember it more and they're going to act on it. Because the first thing we're asking people to sit there through 30 seconds or a minute, whether it's TV or radio or internet or whatever, we're asking that much of their time. You had better damn entertain me, you know? You'd best come up with something that makes it worth my while to sit here. And most of them don't. So, so when you were growing up in Virginia, uh, what were your, your musical influences? I, and I'm, I'm saying Beatles. this as you're wearing a Beatles, Beatles shirt. Uh, Beatles. <laughs> Beatles. So you've got an Abbey, is that an Abbey Road Beatles. shirt? Yeah, this is the Abbey Road version, you know, and okay. uh, George gave it to me. If I didn't say that, I'd be wrong. <laughs> and there's a, you know, there's a, um, I've got a couple others. I've got, you know, uh, Rubber Soul. And I've got, anyway, it doesn't matter. Everybody's got these things. George Harrison gave that shirt to you? I'm kidding, oh, okay. love. <laughs> okay. The Beatles, uh, I had a dear friend in elementary school by the name of David Lively. And he had, he was a drummer and a keyboard pianist. He's, we both had pianos. My, Parents were sending us to the, basically the same piano teacher in the neighborhood. And we started up a little rock band uh, in sixth grade. It was called the Lively Sound Dimension, his name being David Lively. Lively Sound yeah. Dimension. Very trippy 
colors for the kick drum logo, LSD. Yeah. And, uh, yes, you know, once we, we would learn these songs when they came out, note for note. And when you, when you do that, you take the time to really listen deeply with the Beatles, as they, especially as they evolved, you get a great uh, education in harmony, melody, um, songwriting, everything, keeping things in, interesting. So I, I read somewhere that you dropped out of piano lessons pretty early, within a year, and that you don't read music to this day. That is correct. I, I can follow a score. I can play a piano piece looking at sheet music based on the guitar tablature over over top of the staff. Because it gives you the chord. Yeah, you know, and I don't play flowery anyway. I'm just, you know, a Ringo of the piano. <laughs> I just groove. I just drum. You know, it's a percussion instrument after all. Piano. It, yeah, it, the way you play it, it for sure okay. is a percussion <laughs> instrument. Right. No, I, it's I just, just, I've destroyed my. It's, piano. it's powerful. Um, but you you clearly know chord structure and progression right. and uh, just a few of them. I don't know. I don't know all the you know demolished, diminished, whatever. Yeah. I don't. But well, maybe I play them, but I don't know that that's what they are. Yeah. Um, so I, I play by ear and it served me well, you know, I perhaps could have done some other things, filled in some other niches if I played, uh, if, if I uh, read music, but, um, so the, the music that I gravitated toward after the Beatles, um, tended to be good songwriting. And because the Beatles turned me on to what could be done in the studio, I also became interested in in work where the studio was actually an active, you know, uh, instrument, so to speak, in the creation of, of the music. So I come away now and say, who do you like now? Well, that's a whole other podcast, and I don't know if I'm going to be saying those things. Okay. But groups like Crowded House and XTC, uh, XTC, they're not going anymore because they... One of them is, has such stage fright that he can't play live anymore. But uh, I remember XTC. They came out with a, a, a hit early on called uh, Making Plans for Nigel. They're like two different bands to me. You know the, the two different band syndrome, uh, the before and after? You've got, say, before the before and after um, Dark Side of the Moon mm -hmm. when you're talking about Pink Floyd. Right. It's like a demarcation. It's like something happens. Uh -huh. you know? Suddenly they're writing terrific songs you know before it was you know a bunch of groovy animals gathered in a cave and grooving with a pick all these noises and yeah. head trip stuff and um so xtc had their pre you know which was a lot of punky stuff bordering on atonal i couldn't really listen to much of it and then todd rundgren stepped into the picture with them as producer on the album skylarking and it's a wonderful songwriter's album, but what came after, and, what, and I mean every album after Skylarking, was an amazingly solid, groundbreaking, award-winning piece of work to me. Yeah. So, so your influences as a kid um, kind of matured into 
And so you, you like the pop sound of, of Beatles and obviously they're great songwriters. And others, not just Beatles. When I said, you know, we were also doing the Monkees, we were doing some Stones. Elton John. Uh, I don't know if we were doing Elton John back then. It was a little early. Elton came on in 70. Um, yeah, well, you know. You know, that stuff, that, that came rolling down the pike. So you, in, uh, did you end up going to university? <laughs> Which one? <laughs> I went, started off at Virginia Tech in Blacksburg. I majored in uh, yellow, orange, let's see, orange sunshine and, and yellow microdot. I think is what my major and minor were. Okay. In that order. So I was the sixties, right? No, this is yeah. 73. 73. Beautiful colored, you know, sandcastle, sandcastle buildings at night with colored floodlights thrown on there. And I have to take LSD. What's wrong with me? Hey. Um, so I felt guilty about wasting my parents' money because soon <laughs> the computer was spitting out report cards for me that had a note on the bottom, warning, danger, see course advisor immediately, GPA under 2.0. 2.0 is pretty good, isn't it? Thought so. <laughs> so college wasn't working out because of extracurricular activities then? College wasn't working out because I was a dumbass that thought I could go to a liberal arts school and major in political science, Beavis, because they did not have any media uh, stuff yet. The year I left, they broke ground on a huge multimedia complex. So I went to back to Virginia Beach and I went to Old Dominion University. <laughs> oh, you're making me remember this stuff. Where I majored in biology, just so I wouldn't be a dropout. I said, yeah, mom and dad, I'll come back and I'll go to school here. And I found myself staring into a, a, a pan of, you know, a frog pinned to wax like I had done in high school, dissecting a frog, five-hour lab a week. And I thought I'd lost my mind. And my father hooked me up through a friend with a summer job at the CBS television affiliate, um, WTAR, as the cameraman. And that's when things got fun. Kind of lights went on on broadcast it journalism nice. at that point. It was fun. Yeah, and then I got accepted to American University when they were, you know, rioting in the streets and protesting the war and burning ROTC buildings down. I, I thought, this looks like fun. <laughs> so I went there, and that's where I hooked up with all the NPR stuff. And so with the, um, the, NP the recognition that you were getting through the NPR broadcasts and the music that, that you wrote, um, did you stay in the ad industry at that point? Yes, I did. In fact, I wrangled Jim Pugh into doing some jingles with me. Um, actually, somewhere in there, um, ASCAP Music Theater Workshop accepted an application from me. I'd written 
a rock opera called Rock Carol. Dickens, rock and roll in the recording studio setting. Charles Dickens' rock opera? Yeah. And so they had this workshop where you would come to the ASCAP building two days, two days a week, no, one, one day a week, and you could play two of your songs on two different nights for a varied panel of Broadway luminaires from Peter Stone to Patti LuPone to, you know, actors, producers. Um, one night, my night, was, um, oh, Lord, um, Stephen Sondheim. Oh, my goodness. Because I had to sit there on this little rickety piano and play two of my shit-for-brain songs for Stephen Sondheim. And then, of course, at the end, they would pick, you, pick your stuff apart. And, but I met my lyricist there, Jim Morgan of Blessed Memory, um, who said, you know, I like this. It's great. Um, let's start from scratch. Let's do a musical theater piece instead of a rock opera, a family musical. By the way, I have a friend who wants to sublet his apartment in Soho. And I said, you know, doors open, and I flew through them. I moved up to New York for a few years. Where in New York were you living? Um, see, the first one was in Soho. That was corner of Prince and 6th Avenue. Really nice, juicy area to be at nice. the time. So that was the 80s? Yeah, I don't know. Do you know? Search me. I okay. don't know. <laughs> you know my, I was born in 56. Yeah. It, this is... What is this? Night 2019? Yeah. Figured out. It's somewhere in somewhere. between there. Yeah. And then I moved to um, 21st between 7th and 8th in Chelsea. So growing up in Virginia and then moving to New York, um, was that a bit of a, a culture shock or did you feel actually kind of more at home in that environment? A little culture shock. Um, never drink a carbonated beverage when you're having an interview, kids, by the way. Good pointer. End up belching through the entire thing, um, I quickly, it quickly started to jazz me. It was neat because the energy was so cool. Energy was so high. But it's that same energy that made me want to leave. Um, you know, everybody there is good. You know, every, everybody seems to be carrying a film can under their arm or a guitar or something. And you know that a whole lot of them are really good, better than you are good. What are you doing there? Yeah. As, um, as a musician, and a composer, did you find that you were able to tap into more creativity by being in a creative town like New York as opposed to Virginia or somewhere else? Or did it matter? I think the short answer is yes, but there's an asterisk uh, above it. Yes, because I immediately got connected with a a clique, as it were, of people who were in and out of the studio. Um, the first thing I did when I moved to Chelsea was find a recording studio near me. And I just walked around and I saw, okay, this is, this is the secret sound of 28th Street. I, went, I took the elevator, went up there. And when the door of the elevator opened into the lobby of this place, I looked on the wall and there was a gold record, a 45 gold record of this song that I had adored in Virginia Beach. It, it was a song by a band called Everything is Everything, Native Americans. And the song was a a genuine, uh, I think it was a Sioux peyote chant. It's called Wichita. And it had become a regional hit when I was a kid. And so I went to the owner. I said, was this recorded here? And he took me back to the tape room, the storage room, and showed me the, the uh, I think it was like back then, three-track tape they did it on. 
showed me the box, and I said, I gotta, I gotta record some here. Let's, you know, let's talk about rates. And then I found out that this was Todd Rundgren's studio before he went upstate New York to start Bearsville. Wow. How's that for a little connection? <laughs> so, so it sounds like the, the environment of you know, being in New York was inspiring in some way yeah. for you. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. Uh, there were people in and out, whether they were famous or not. And sometimes they were famous. I, I remember sitting on the couch in that uh, lobby of Secret Sound waiting for my time to go in. And I couldn't go in because uh, Lou Reed was in there running late and he bursts out the door screaming and yelling. And what he said was, God damn it. I wish I'd never heard the word Simpty in my life. Simpty, for those who are wondering, S-M-P-T-E, it's the, it's the way that we used to sync up two tape machines. It was a tone, a Simpty tone, whatever, sort of sounded like a modem tone. And by playing that from one tape machine, the other tape machine would listen, and the two would roll simultaneously and not drift from each other. So you could gang up two eight-track or 16-track machines and have but in, in invariably, there would always be dropouts. And when there was a dropout, the sink would be lost. So what was it about that energy that made you want to leave New York? The quality of life. Okay, no matter who you are in New York, no matter how much money you have, once you get out of your penthouse dealie, you're downstairs having to deal with the same traffic, potholes, noise, smells, sounds, um, that any other schmo has to deal with. Uh, just the very going about your daily business, you know, buying groceries or bringing laundry to a place. I was tired of being a, you know, a fire ant with a bunch of stuff on my back. Yeah. I you know, didn't really have the money to, to cab everywhere. And if you did, there was no guarantee you're gonna get to your place on time because traffic is horrendous. So it's a light went off above my head. I, I said, look, I'm, you know, goals are fine. It, it hadn't really occurred to me that I'd sort of made a, a little, made my mark sort of in public radio music history or whatever. That wasn't happening to my head. My head had not become big then. It was only later that my head got big. <laughs> and I, so I said, yeah, I'm leaving. I'm going back to Virginia Beach. They thought I was crazy. My friends thought I was crazy. And was it the right move, you think? Oh, I don't know. Wait a minute. Yes, of course it was. I met Melissa on February 9th. Without that, I probably would not have met Melissa. Huh. That's your girlfriend? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you go back to Virginia Beach, and um, what kind of, what kind of uh, work were you doing there to stay busy and stay alive? Jingles still, yeah. I think. Also, when the Macintosh came out, I remember in New York, I saw an ad for it, you know, a poster in a store, a cute little square thing with the, uh, with the word hello written in cursive on a screen, you know. And I said, I don't know what that thing is, but I'm going to get one. <laughs> and sure enough, there were only two programs, uh, a word processing program and a um, graphic program called McPaint, black and white, mind you. Uh, 128K of memory, mind you. Yeah. Um, disks, floppy disks that you had to interchange to copy from a file from one thing to another. You're constantly switching disk A, disk B, disk A, disk B. It was crazy. 
But it was fun. We started the New York Mac Users Group. We got some of the luminaires from Apple to come and speak to us. Um, Andy Hertz, Hertzfeld, I believe, who created HyperCard. Which, I mean, I am carbon dating my ass here, aren't I? <laughs> when, when did you win the, the award, that international award for um, advertising? Uh, Clio. Clio, yeah. I don't know. So that I, I did a little bit of research on on the Clio, and it, it sounds like it's it's like basically, you know, like a Peabody Award yeah, it's for not, it's, they call it know, the Oscars for advertising. Or the Oscars That's for advertising, yeah. 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 So how how did um, how did that happen? How did you get in the running for a Clio? The ad agencies invariably every year take what they think is their best work and enter it. Yeah. I mean, it's all a, you know, pat everybody on the back type of thing, as I realize now. But back then, it felt good to win one of these things. There's a local version, you know, the local and regional versions called the Addies. And we were winning those all the time. You know, that's nice to be, it's nice to be um, recognized by your peers because they know what it takes to do this stuff. You know? Yeah. Um, if yeah. I'm in a club, you know, at the end of a night, uh, somebody who's been drinking heavily comes up to me and said, man, I really like that. What you did with that you know, bad company, you know, and I know I didn't play one bad company song the whole night. <laughs> or if somebody comes up and, you know, he tells me he plays guitar with this band or he's an engineer and, he's, and he compliments me in some specific way, you know, man, that the solo on, um, you know, Jessica and all my brothers medley, that was great. And that was the right tempo, too. Okay, he noticed two things. That, I'm going to sit down and drink beer with this guy tonight. So um, th there was, we were talking about. We were a, uh, talking. In, on our hike earlier, um, you mentioned that you got bit by a tick, a deer tick, in the 90s and contracted Lyme disease. Um, can you tell us? how that has and I, I know you probably can't pinpoint particular symptoms relating to Lyme versus you know something else but how you think that has changed your ability to play music to write music to perform music it's a slow motion hammer to the head that's the way I describe what happened to me very you know slow like you know a what is that saying we have some animal in a pot that's set to boil a frog you know doesn't know that it can't jump out because the the water's getting hotter so slowly it doesn't realize it and before before it realizes what's going on it's boiling and so that's what this is like i didn't realize what was happening to me until too late too late to get proper treatment soon enough to to do much different so while it appears to my friends and to other people that not a great deal of degradation has been going on in, in my head and my, in my emotionality. Inside me, I can tell you it has. It feels like, you know, part of my brain has been scooped out. Um, ability to learn new things, new songs even. You know, the old songs are pretty much there for, for, for as a general rule, but learning this has to do with um, what they call working memory. I've done my share of research on it. And so information comes in, especially auditory learning. I'm, I'm a 
very severely hit in auditory learning. And that, you know, that involves listening to people. That's how we communicate, it's talking. So people talk to me, and if they're talking to me too long, too much, if they're too verbal, I have to put up a stop sign, you know, use my hands and say stop. Or the information is going, that goes in my head and just gets ejected. And after that, it, it just pummels me. It's sort of abusive. So I have a real, I've got to really watch out about surrounding myself with people who really like to talk. It's not their fault, you know, but I have to protect myself from that. And that has changed my life. So it, it sounds like then that you're, you still have the songs that you knew before. They, they come easier. They come yeah. back easier, put it that way. But the newer music is just... There's a great yeah. book about this, which I think it's about this and about how the internet is changing the way our brains work, uh, physiologically and otherwise. And it's called The Shallows. And I'll get you more information on that. It's written eight years ago, so it contains some funky stuff like you know, mentioning uh, uh, Amazon or Google. He mentions Google and he says, you know, I'm not so sure this is going to last, but <laughs> I had to shake my head and look, then go back to the front of the book and look, see when this was published. It was published in uh, 2011. So in 2017, you put out an album uh, called BJ, which I have. I ordered on Amazon. Are you sure it was 17 and not 16? Um, I think it's, I think it's a 2017. Because I mean, that's only two years ago. Yeah. Wow. What do you know? Yeah. And, um, I didn't put it on streaming though. You have some, why didn't you put it on streaming? I don't know. I was an idiot. I figured, <laughs> you know, the people buying this thing would mostly be NPR listeners because that's where we were concentrating our promotion. And I was on, you know, weekend edition with Scott Simon. I was on a bunch of other NPR and public radio shows. I figured these guys still have CD players. They don't want to buy one. So I'm still looking at the possibility of doing an exclusive um, streaming debut with a Spotify or Apple Music. So um, the album you play, you play with Bella Fleck on three of the songs on that album. Actually, mm -hmm. let me get it straight. He just plays two of the tracks that I'd already recorded years ago. This album has songs that span from they wrote twenty years ago, and some of them just a few years ago. Oh, okay, yeah. So, so Bella Fleck, how did that happen? How did that connection get made? I, I don't know how Bella came into my mind to um there would be I, I didn't know at what point i said abella would be a good match for some of these instrumentals i have but he was coming to Asheville to play at a festival called the leaf festival lake eden art festival and my assistant and good friend barbie angel um said that she knew him i said can you introduce me while he's here so she took me backstage after uh Bella and Abigail finished their set and he greeted me warmly. He seemed to know who I was and I had this uh, CD all prepared of the, the backing tracks for these little ditties. I said, would you mind listening to these and seeing if there's one that you would like to play on, if you would, be, if you would do me that honor? And so he took them. He said, yeah, I'll listen to them. And I don't know when it was that I got word. He said, yeah, I, I'll pick these three. Can I do these three? I said, yeah, great. Where do we? He said, come to my studio in Nashville. And I went there and he let me produce him, which was daunting at first. And I had to, the first you know, 20 minutes, half hour, I'm going, what am I doing? 
producing Bella Fleck. He was acting just like a you know a player, but he had obviously it was obvious to me he had spent some time with these tracks and you know did a little shedding and wrote some parts yeah. because it, it was you know one take or two take stuff. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. What a contribution to the album too. Yep. You know, and uh, also very lucky and proud to have uh, fallen in with the Randall Bramlett band. They're friends of mine now. Um, Michael Steele, the bass player, was uh, played bass in one of my bands, the bands I was in in Atlanta called the Joe Band. <laughs> and uh, so they came up to Asheville, and we recorded this at uh, Echo Mountain. Um, Julian Dreyer on the boards and uh, mixer man Eric Serafin producing, and we got it done. I don't know how. I don't remember hardly a bit of it. So the album comes out in 2017, and it's not on streaming yet, but sounds like that might be a possibility in the future for you. Nothing philosophically. You, you are you're not against it philosophically. Oh hell yes! I'm no, I'm not against streaming as you know the new and the next and the necessary uh, means of publication and dissemination of, of digital information. I'm, I'm really not. What I'm miffed about, a number of things, including the fact that they did not have and still don't have a, a royalty payment system that honors the writer correctly. They don't have that in place yet. Um, the, for the most part, you know, we're talking about sound here. And yes, I'm an audiophile. I'm a producer. I'm a writer. I know what good sound sounds like coming out of decent speakers and a decent headset. And on the other end of the spectrum, I know what poorly compressed MP3s and Apple music files, I know what they sound like. And what, what really tears me up is that I know that most people don't know the difference yeah, they don't. and don't care because they have not had the chance, the, the beautiful experience of putting on a headset or sitting between two wonderful speakers. And no, I don't mean those speakers on the sides of your computer folks or whatever. And having an engineer or whatever push play on a 24-bit, uh, basically the same uh, sample rate, the same stuff that we hear when we mix it in studio. You'd be blown away. You would cry. You'd absolutely cry if you've been listening on, let's say, crappy earbuds or even halfway decent earbuds, and you're listening to a streaming version from Spotify, let's say. It's been compressed so greatly, so the file size is so small, so it can be delivered you know, over 4G or whatever so quickly that there is some severe damage done to the sound. And it's, you know, I compare it to, you'll say you want, you're going to the, the, the Louvre or something, you know, and you want to see Da Vinci or whatever. And you look and they've taken all the big paintings and they've squeezed them down to, you know, maybe the size of a postcard. And at the same time, they took out the purples and some of the reds. And the lines are kind of blurry, and you have to stand, you know, a few feet away to see it. Why are they doing this to music? It just boggles my mind. So I understand the the economics of it. I understand the necessity of some sort of compression scheme to make file sizes small. 
the good news is that there are a couple of services for audio files. I mean, you pay more, but you get the same file that we heard in the studio, the one I was talking about. D didn't Neil Young start? Neil Young started it. It didn't go anywhere. I think it was called Pony or Pump. Started with a P. I know yeah, that. Ponos, something like that. Yeah. And he had the right idea, but Neil, I don't know. Yeah, it's tough because you're you're dealing with a culture that appreciates just the convenience of having everything on a phone, you know, ten thousand songs on a phone. And there, um, there's a another entire podcast or book or something that I feel I feel like I'd like to conquer one day about the the deal we made with the devil when we accepted that iPhone and the technology that came along with it. Because the first thing that happened that was obvious to me was, you know, guys, you don't have the phone call down yet. And what I mean by that is the quality of the, little did I know that the main user today basically has killed the phone call. You know, yeah. well, the yeah. young people who use it would rarely use it for phone. Texting is the, the mode now. True. And, um, but I said back then, this phone call sounds like shit. And the people go, what do you mean? Well, do I, let me point it out to you. It's granular. It's on, you know, packet switching or whatever. Your, your audio is, your voice is digitized and cut up into little bite-sized pieces and sent willy-nilly across the internet. Well, that's VOIP I'm talking about. But even cellular, it is a crappy signal there's delay there's latency you notice how you're always going oh you know you go first no you go on you go first you go? that's the delay we never had that with that phone on the kitchen wall because that was what was called full duplex every home had a set of copper wires a pair two copper wires leading from their house to the switching station when you wanted to call your friend phil jones around the corner when you dialed your number, the computer switching station would physically take the end of your two wires and route it electronically to Phil Jones, the wires that went to Phil Jones's house. So it was like you had your own wired walkie-talkie and you could talk to each other at the same time. You could, I remember singing to people with people on the other end. And you could hear them all the time. That's called full duplex. It's not this cutting in and out of you either hear the person or you're talking. Anyway, it's too much to explain. I just explained it, didn't I? You did very well, by the way. The lesson here is that I think we have allowed ourselves to let quality choose less quality right. for the convenience of these devices. Yeah, we, we've actually reduced the quality of our our physical connection, you know, that uh, the, yeah. the actual connection that you were just describing. Um, there hardly is one anymore because yeah. people are more concerned with seeing where they can be, where they can, what they can do, where they can be. And I'm holding, you know, my hand up as if I have a device in it right now, rather than being with the person in the room that you are in right now. They have reconstrabulated the priority of what's more important. And to me, I'm sorry, but it's always going to be where I am now physically and who I'm with now physically. If a phone call comes in, you know, I'm sorry, but unless it's a certain ringtone that tells me it's someone with an emergency, I'm going to let it go. 
I don't look at the thing when every time it beeps. I keep my phone on do not disturb and I go to it when I have the, the minutes, little period of time where I want to check up on what's going on. If you text me, do not expect to text back immediately because I'm training you people. Well, I appreciate it. I, I need the help. Um, I think you're doing much better than I A lot of people do and society does. Yeah. And, you know, it's one thing and it's certainly true that younger generations who are born with this technology, we can't compare our trip to their trip, but we can look at what's happening to them and suspect that there's a probability that somewhere down the line as they grow up, they're going to suffer from an inability to communicate deeply and with any, and to focus on any effing thing for any length of time. Yeah. That they'll become aware of that and they'll fix it. Because they're going to say, I'll be damned if my kids are going to have this ha happen to them. Yeah. So you um, have been working in a creative space for a long time, since your, your teens, and well, certainly since your 20s. But was there a point where you, you had basically had to get a day job because the arts and music and jingle writing just weren't... You, you just weren't able to survive? Yeah, I, I did have to actually yeah, work <laughs> from time to time, but I was lucky in that. I, I had a, I became good friends with Frank Beach, who was working for the, you love this, the CNP Telephone Company. Kids, that was the name for one of the telephone companies known as the Baby Bells before the antitrust legislation broke up AT&T, whatever. And I was doing um, audiovisual, AV it was called, right. multi-projector slideshows. Oh, if you guys could see the, you know, the, um, <laughs> it's like as if Fred Flintstone is putting together, you know, some show. That's what we were doing <laughs> with slides and tape and. Physical slides. Yeah, physical slides. And, yeah. you know, in a carousel projector, you may know your, your grandparents have one of these carousel projectors, little slides in them. And we had, you know, 20, 21 projectors all aimed at a large screen, um, three different screens that would meld into each other. And then invariably, somewhere along the way, the client would change something. We'd have to change the order of the slides. Do you, do you know what that means? If you have to insert one slide... You have to physically move all the slides back into their slots. So, so you did that. It was it was trauma. <laughs> you did that for never for mind work. the bad LSD trips. Yeah. This was trauma. But it, but it sounds like then. I mean, if that's what you're doing to get by, so that you can continue making music. But it sounds like you're still kind of in a creative in an audiovisual space. Yes, I was, that's why I'm saying I was lucky. I was able to stay in the in that world. You know? Yeah. Was there ever a point when you doubted your trajectory in life and the decisions that you'd made and, and said, this is just too, too difficult? Yes. You know, I'm not one of these people who come up here and tell you that I knew exactly what I was doing every step of the way. And I had everything planned out because I am Superman. No, I didn't have a clue for most of it. I let 
the forces of nature. You know, I went with the flow. When the door when a door opened, no matter how strange it seemed or how different than what I was doing now, if it seemed like it might interest me, I went through it and started doing this thing. Moved to that city, whatever. Yeah. Um, I adopted the philosophy that life is ludicrous pretty early on. Uh, I adopted a what is that called? Um, hmm. It's a form of drama. Anyway. So. Well, I, I think your, your bumper sticker kind of reflects that, that yeah, attitude. Yeah, it says everything will be fine, and then in small letters it says, not really. <laughs> just kidding. You're <laughs> just kidding? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know, we are a bunch of, you know, we're all the same poor schmuck just waking up every morning trying to get through a day. Everybody. Even the CEOs of the most gnarly Beelzebub worshiping companies to the man on the street sleeping in the box, musicians, movie stars, whatever. That's who we are. And we're not treating each other that way. So I'm surprised that I've been here this long. I'm surprised that the country has been here as it is this long, I'm surprised the world has been here this long. What, what advice would you have for a young person, say they're just about ready to graduate from high school, and they're looking at the, the traditional career path of college, get the highest paying job you can get out of college, or doing something more creative, whether it's, um, you know, visual arts or music or something like that. What advice do you have for that young person? Whether it's a young person who actually knows what they want to do, air quotes, or, or thinks they know, excuse me, or somebody who is floundering and really doesn't know and is, is scared because, you know, at the end of your junior, senior in high school, that's when you know everybody starts asking you, "What are you going to do when you grow up? What do you want to go? What are you going to school? What's it? you know?" And you're made to think you're supposed to have the answer to that right then and there. Well, you're not. So first of all, slow down. You don't have to have it all put together. You don't have to know what you're going to do even all through college. So if you're going to go to college, make use of it. And what I would do is learn how to learn. Learn how to think in college because probably you were not taught that in your public school system or your church or your synagogue. You were taught something totally different, but you weren't taught how to use your own brain, the brain your creator gave you to make rational, to have rational thought and make rational decisions uh, regarding your life or vis-a-vis -vis strangers, friends, or other. So get that done. Go to college and read. Read your ass off. Re find great novels that interest you. Uh, if you find an author that interests you, you can go online and see, if you like this guy, you'll love these books. You know, if you start reading, everything will change in your life, first of all. Everything will get better. And then it's very simple. Look around you and see all of the poor schmucks who are going to jobs every day, maybe more than one to make ends meet, that they absolutely hate. They're in an office or a cubicle or behind a counter of a fast food, but whatever it is. And they're doing that for a third, if not more, of their lives 
for a little bit of money maybe. You, on the other hand, figure out what, what that thing is that you love, that you would do for free. What's your hobby? What's the thing that really does it for you? And once you answer that, go out there and find a job in it. Make them pay you for it. You'll find the job in most anything that floats your boat. It may not be in your hometown. I'd urge you to get out of your hometown, too. Why is that? Well, because people who stay close to their home, you know, for their whole lives, don't tend to, um, they don't tend to gain much knowledge of the world out there. They think that their hometown is the shit. Is their world. Yeah. And so it depends. Your hometown could be a, you know, a, a cool, fine, upstanding, loving, inclusive hometown, in which case muscle tough to you, or your hometown could be, don't even want to say it, but you know what I mean, could be the place where you learn how to hate. So get the hell out. And what advice would you have for someone who has already hopped on that career path of the job that they hate? Um, and they're, they've been doing that for say 20 years. Um, and they want to do something different and maybe, maybe they want to continue with their job, but they want to do something creative in addition, or maybe they want to quit and try something creative, you know, as a career, what advice would you have for them? I would say, and it sounds corny and it, I hated it when people used it with me, but believe in yourself. Dad used to tell me all the time, son, you don't believe in yourself enough. He was right. He was right. And I didn't believe in myself until I realized, hey, dude, your stuff is on NPR, you know, five times a day all over the well, armed forces all over the world, pretty much. That did a little to convince me, you know, that I was all right. Started I could do something. Yeah. Um, but believe in yourself and do the same thing I tell the, the kid. Fine. What is that? You do you have a novel, a half-baked novel in the drawer? Get it out, dust it off, find some time or apply for some grants so you can quit work and work on it. Um, it's not over till it's over. And if you need to work, wouldn't it be cooler doing working something you, you like, you love, that you want to wake up every morning and you can't wait to get to? That's what I'm talking about. So where can listeners um, find you? what your website and social media tell us where they can find you i'm about to dump my ass off of social media because it's it's giving me cancer <laughs> it's stressing me out so much i think it's stressing a lot of people out. oh yeah yeah when i see you know a new york times post you know not their article but the little blurb about their post that they post describing the article, and I see a typo in that. I just want to pull my hair. Okay, and to most people, you know, excuse me, but the internet generation, they don't care. It's not a big deal. Punctuation went out the door, and that's fine, too. I don't want to, you know, I was never one to want to bring, keep the king's English. The, um, you know, the rules and stuff it down youngsters' throats. They've got their own way of speaking and i guess this is their way of writing please keep the period because we need to know where the end of the sentence is so your website yes, the website is bjleaderman.com which will be handy because that's where you'll find my phone number probably or at least an email address okay and 
That's BJ Lederman at Mac, as in Macintosh.com. So soon I will not have Facebook or Twitter presence anymore, I don't think. I'm going to try that out. All right. See well, if my neurons and synapses grow back. Well, let me know how that goes. I'll have Thank to you. check out that book, The Shallows. And um, in, in musically, um, you know, you, you live in Asheville. Is, is there a place um, that you like to hang out where people might be able to run into you? Yeah, there are a couple places. One is White Horse in Black Mountain, a couple of towns over. Okay. And they were the people who gave me my first, uh, they welcomed me with opened arms when I first moved here. I said, BJ, there's the stage. You can just do anything you want anytime. That was nice. Um, also, uh, there's a place called um, Block Off Biltmore, which is the first uh, vegan bar in Asheville. I didn't know there was a vegan bar. Yes, there's ways to that liquor is filtered, you know, that uses animal membranes or whatever. Well, they don't buy that liquor. Oh. And it's the hotbed of all things interesting and progressive going on in town. And then there's the ISIS in West Asheville. ISIS, and it's a great, it's a, used to be a movie theater. Sounds wonderful in there. Sound man is killer. And, uh, and, and Scotty, uh, excuse me, Woody brings some great, great bands in there so you just go in any of those places and yell my name they'll know where to find me anyway nice well when i come back to Asheville, and i'm definitely coming yeah, back spend some more time next time have some fun go, i will go hiking or something i absolutely will this has been fun bj lederman thank you so much for talking with us thank you bye hey thank you for listening and i hope you enjoyed today's episode of the dream path podcast if so i have a favor to ask can you go to your favorite podcast service and give me a rating and review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. I appreciate your time. And as always, go find your dream path.